You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Follow along with me as we read from John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I choose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, hey, folks, good morning. I hope you're in John chapter 15. If you're not there yet, go ahead and turn there along with me. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of John. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. It's my honor to typically preach God's Word when we gather. Uh, I was born in 1990, and the only reason that's important is this. My date of birth is sandwiched between two of the greatest songs of the previous generation. 1984, Foreigner comes out with their great hit, I Want to Know What Love Is. Timeless, resonates with us. And then, a few years after I was born in 1993, German Eurodance song comes out, What is Love? Do you know that song? I I could sing these if you don't know them. I'm not going to embarrass myself. No, Neil, no. And I will not make you uncomfortable, but I think you know them. I think you know them. And look, it's, they're like, you know, I think they're probably stuck because they're, they're pretty cheesy songs. But I think we tend to laugh off the things that we, like, deep down take most seriously, which is like, what is love? We all want to be loved like that. We want to be genuinely touched by great, the greatest form of love there is. So what is love? And I want to know what it is. And Jesus answers that timeless question today. He tells us what it's like to be loved by him and how we can love others that way. So this, this uh, teaching today, I'll remind you, is sandwiched uh, in the middle of this greater unit, this three chapters long unit called the final discourse. This is Jesus' last final farewell speech to his friends, his disciples, before he uh, is killed and then ascends back to the Father. So while Jesus is absent, certainly living and reigning at the right hand of God, but while he is absent, he has told us several things to attach ourselves to, promises to believe. While he is gone, he's promised us that we're going to have a family reunion to look forward to one day. He's promised us the Holy Spirit. He's promised us that we will have deep, real, abiding fellowship with him. And today, he promises us that he loves us. And if we are caught up in this love, we will love one another and nothing will ever be the same. So here's the main idea today, okay? I want you to walk out here with one main idea. You ready? We are to be loved by Jesus and love like Jesus for the mission of Jesus. We are to be loved by Jesus and love like Jesus for the mission of Jesus. So we're going to just walk through that statement, through this passage together. Before I do that, actually, I want to go ahead and I want to pray for us. Uh, So Father, we approach you now uh, with fear and trembling because we... We can't do what you're asking us to do, what Jesus envisions for us, apart from your help. So, Lord, take this profound truth in these uh, pages of your scripture and apply them to our heart and apply them to our imagination 
God, I pray that we would uh, leave here today uh, repenting of sin, repenting of excuses that we've made, no longer withholding ourselves from loving other people, no longer limiting ourselves from your love, Father, but changed by your love, going out into the world, marked by your love. And so, Father, we are here to meet with you. Come to us now. Teach our hearts. Change us and transform us so that we're never the same again. Amen. All right, let's talk about being loved by Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, you read that verse, and you want to probably immediately apply. Like, our, our instinct is like, application, what application can I do here? How can I love other people? Hold on. Before we try to understand what kind of love we ought to show, we need to know the love that's modeled to us. Jesus says, love one another, what? As I have loved you. So that's where we got to start. We have to know Jesus' love for us, because our love is to be defined by that love and shaped by that love, and he tells us what this love is that he's given us next, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. There's no greater love than this. This is the purest, greatest form of love, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus understands love to have no reservations, no limits. His love extends all the way to even death. Imagine a love that says, I'm going, I'm not going to withhold anything from you, not even my final breath. If that's what it takes to show you my love, to transfer to you my love, to put my love on you, that is what I will do. No limits, not even my very own life. That's what Jesus speaks. That's what he says he is going to do. And then that's what he does when he dies on the cross for us. He goes to the cross and loves us to the fullest and final extent. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, has this line. You've probably heard it before, maybe at a wedding ceremony. It says this, Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. The question there is, what does it mean to have a love that's as strong and fierce as death? It means that the only instance my love will cease is if I have nothing else to give because I've given it all already. I've exhausted everything that I have, not just my time and energy and resources, but my very own life to the final breath. That's how Jesus has loved us. Full, the full extent of love. No greater love than this. Now listen, you are the object of this love. You are the beloved. The reigning, living, breathing Jesus actually feels this way about you. This is his deep affection for you. He loves you like this. Now, I know that we emphasize all the time that Jesus died for God's glory. It's so true. Jesus died for God's glory. But don't forget, Jesus also died because he loved us. Romans 5 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. What drove Jesus to the cross It's the glory of the Father. At the same time, it's because he loves you, because you're the object of his intense love. And I know we emphasize how ugly and wretched sin makes us. It's absolutely true. But that should just punctuate how scandalous Jesus' love is, because in our unlovely state, he valued us as worthy of the greatest love, love unto death. Jesus places that worth on you even in your state of alienation from him and of 
guilt before him. And now when someone loves you like this, when, someone, when you're the object of this kind of intense, pure love, it transforms you, right? When someone loves you when you're in a state of ugliness, it transforms you into someone beautiful. So when we understand that we are the object of this love, of Jesus' love, it causes us to shed our unloveliness and take on the loveliness that he sees already. It's like Jesus' love calls forth loveliness in us. Now, you can see this when you recall that in verse 12, Jesus says, we are his friends. Greater love, there's no greater love than this, that I lay down my life for my friends. Now, that should cause you to sort of stumble for a second because you would think to yourself, I thought we were his enemies. Romans 5 says we are his enemies. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are born as his enemies. How can we be his friends and at the same time his enemies which is it? And it's both. Jesus loved us while we were enemies, and through that willful, costly love, he made us his friends. So when you know that you are the beloved and the lover places such incredible value on you, everything changes. Everything feels different, doesn't it? So like, think about marriage for a moment. That I have Rebecca's heart, that I have her love, that I have her respect, you know what? It makes me feel like a million bucks. It, like when I know like that I have Rebecca's love and respect, it makes me feel like I can just like take on the world. And here's what's crazier. There are so many times I don't deserve that kind of treatment. I don't deserve that respect. I don't deserve that love. But she gives it to me anyway. And you know what that does to me? It transforms me to be somebody admirable, to be somebody respectable, like the person that she sees me and is attributing worth to me, even when I don't deserve it, it causes me to rise to the occasion and be that kind of person that she sees me as. Love transforms us, and this is how God feels about us. Like, the love in a marriage is just a flicker of the flame of God, so that we are loved by Jesus to the fullest expression, because that's just how much he thinks of me. Despite me, it makes me see myself as the beloved. You know, in premarital counseling, if you've ever done that with us, if you're ever going to do that with us in the future, we uh, study Song of Songs. That's one of the sessions that we do. And in Song of Songs, chapter one, it's like this, you know, love story between Solomon and the one girl he got it right with. And she starts off in the story, in the poem, really insecure uh, about herself. And what Solomon does is he pursues her. He declares how beautiful she is. He buys her jewelry. All why? Why does Solomon do that? To get her to see herself the way he already sees her. And so by the end of the chapter, by the end of the unit, she declares, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. I am what Solomon sees me as. And hey, followers of Jesus, yes, we're unworthy. <laughs> yes, we're dirty. Yes, we mess up all of the time, but Jesus values us so much, loves us so much that he went to full extent to die for us. And the result, those of us who are unlovely might be, begin to see ourselves as lovely, see ourselves the way he sees us. Now, this begs the question again, how can Jesus consider us his friend and, be and beloved when we're born as enemies and born as enemies and because of our sin, unlovely. Like, how is that going to happen? And the answer is also because Jesus 
has an eternal and covenantal love for us that acknowledges who we will be, not what sin makes us. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's using this uh, social structure of indentured servitude to drive home a point here. When you were a slave in this system, you'd be told what to do, you'd be expected to do it. No explanation was to be given, no explanation was to be expected. But Jesus is saying here, if he has died for you, if I have died for you, you are a friend. And friends enjoy access to privileged information. Friends enjoy the kind of revelation that everyone else is totally unaware exists. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called a, friend, called a friend of God because they enjoyed extraordinary access to the mind of God. So those of us loved by God, his friends, those he died for, are brought into a category of persons who enjoy special, secretless relationship with God, with Father and Son. And the specific secret here that he's going to make known to us, that he brings us, his friends in on, is the cross the cross is the mystery of the ages. It's, what's the, it's what the entire Old Testament was hiding but driving towards. Whenever you see that language, that what the Father and I know, we're going to make known to you, we're going to let you in on this secret hidden knowledge, that's always about the cross. That's been the mystery for ages. So those who know the extent of God's love in Jesus, if you know that knowledge, you're in a selective group. Not everyone is told the secrets of the Father and the Son. So that's who his friends are. They're brought into special, privileged relationship with Jesus. But now Jesus expands on that a little bit more in verse 16 when he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you or set you aside. This is like covenantal language. We who know the love of Jesus, who are his friends, who know of the cross, who know that the cross is ours, that Jesus did that for us, we are chosen, we are set aside, we're in a special group of people. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So, Jesus has loved us extravagantly to the fullest extent by dying for us when we were unlovely, but more than that. Jesus has set his love on us before time ever began, before you and I were ever born, before we ever took a breath, before we did anything good or bad. The Father and the Son put their promised love on you. He pledged his heart to you and chose you out of the world as his own. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. And this is a persistent love then. It's a persevering love because it's a promised love. He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to dip out. You know, all of us uh, at one time are either a good friend or a bad friend. That's true of all of us in here. Either in any relationship that we have, we're either the good friend or the bad friend at any given time. But when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, he's always the good friend and we're always the bad friend. Like, we're never keeping up our end of the bargain. We're always flaking out. We're never showing up. Jesus is the good friend, 
and he never, he never responds accordingly. He always shows up. He's always there. Now, just think about these disciples for a moment. Jesus, he dies for them. He tells them everything because they're chosen. They're in his select group of friends. But Jesus knows that each and every single one of them are going to forsake him. In his moment of greatest need, all of these friends are going to turn their back on him. And then after he dies, and then after he resurrects, what's he going to do? He's going to go find each and every one of them, pursue them, forgive them, and repurpose them. That's just the kind of friend Jesus is. And why is he like that? Because his love is a promised love. It's a persevering love. It does not grow weary. It's inexhaustible. Jesus loves us through our struggles. And look, because Jesus has a promised-oriented kind of love, he knows exactly who he's getting in a relationship with. He's not surprised at all by my lack of passion. He's not surprised at all by our apathy. He's not surprised at all when we mess it up. And he's not going to leave. He's not going to flinch. He knows who he's getting into covenant with. And look, I look back at my life, and I see all the times that I've resented him. Just a moment of honesty. Like, I look back and I see all the times that I've disregarded him. All the times where I just wanted to coast and not give him my best. Not be consecrated to him. Not set apart for him because I don't trust him. Because I doubt that he's good. Because I doubt that he has wise and good intentions for me, even though I don't know how things are going to play out. I forget that every hair on my head is numbered that all my days are accounted for. Each day of my life is planned before me. I forget that he is my good shepherd who leads me beside still waters. He causes my cup to run over. That his mercy and goodness chase after me all the days of my life. I forget these things so, so easily. But he never forgets us because he has a persevering, persistent, stubborn love. So I hope that you know that this is how Jesus feels towards you. What we're talking about right now, this love that doesn't even withhold the final breath, this love that has promised, that's promised to you before in eternity past, I hope you realize these aren't just theological categories. This isn't just, you know, spiritual words that we read through. This is actually God's Father heart towards you. This is actually the Son's deepest longings for you. He loves you with an intense kind of love. There's a hymn I love, an old hymn called The Love of God. Uh, it, it has this verse that just stuns me. I'm going to read it to you slowly. It says this, and it's trying to convey the infinite, incredible love of God. It goes like this. This verse goes like this. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the sky of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God's infinite, abounding love surges out towards you in the act of Jesus' death for you and long ago in eternity past. 
And let me just tell you here, if you're a follower of Jesus, do whatever it takes to know this love. Do whatever it takes to draw near to Him. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, are you, are you practicing the spiritual disciplines? Like, are you taking the time to be with Him and to fellowship with Him and commune with Him? to read your Bible, but not in a quick, hurried way, not just to check something, not just to be in control of your life and have a managed schedule with tasks in it, but are you taking the time in the stillness of the morning to read the Word slowly so that it reads you and so you have the revelation of who God is and you know Him in your mind so your heart can actually love Him? Are you taking the time to pray with Him in the stillness of the morning, to commune with Him, to speak with Him and have His Word speak back to you? You have to do whatever it takes and look, I have little kids, and I know how hard this is because you're just tired all of the time. We're just in like this perpetual downward spiral of exhaustion. Every worthwhile decision has always been hard in our lives, right? The things that don't matter that much are the easiest things to do. The things that matter and that will change you and your life are always the hardest decisions to make and always the ones you regret not making. We can know this love. Ephesians 3 tells us we can know the height, depth, breadth, length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thomas Aquinas, medieval scholar and theologian, he writes this massive thing called the Summa Theologica. And he stopped all of a sudden. He just quit. And his friend asked him, why did you do that? And he said, I had an experience with the love of God that made all my theology seem like straw. We have to know this love and do whatever it takes to know this love. If you're here and you're on the fence about Jesus, which I'm sure there's some of you here who haven't made your mind about him yet, I just want you to know that you're not going to find a love like this anywhere else. Like No romantic partner is going to be good enough to, to, to achieve this for you and give this to you. No uh, amount of children you have is going to be able to do this for you. No perfect friendship exists like this. No family has enough love to give like this. These are all good shadows of the substance, but we can actually have the substance Jesus himself. And so look, why settle for anything less? If Jesus feels this way about you, has proven it by dying for you, and has selected you, put his love on you from before the ages began, then why settle for anything less? So look, maybe Christians of the church have ruined Jesus for you, and that's why you're on the fence about Jesus. But look, you wouldn't reject Picasso because you witnessed a poor impersonator, would you? So don't make the same mistake with Jesus. Maybe the reason why you're on the fence about Jesus is because you think you're too damaged, like you've gone too far, crossed too many lines. But look, (laughs) those kind of people, damaged people, hurting people, those are the people that Jesus is interested in exclusively. He draws near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Church is not a place for people who have it all together. Church is a hospital for the sick. We are a community of people who just need the love of Jesus. So welcome to the club. And look, if you're on the fence about Jesus because you're just unsure, I'll tell you this. At some point, you just have to take that absurd leap across the threshold of the door and enter into it. Because if you're withholding your commitment to Jesus because you need more proof, you need more reason, you're going to be waiting forever. Because none of us make decisions in our life on the basis of having the full, clear picture of everything. That doesn't happen. You don't marry someone with that kind of knowledge. You don't take a job with that kind of knowledge. You don't make decisions in life based on full evidence. 
you make those decisions in life based on sufficient evidence. And so is God real? Is Jesus real? Has he really resurrected? Is this all true? There is definitely sufficient, at least, knowledge to prove that it's true. And so listen, don't hold out on God because of a standard that you hold nothing else to and no one else to. Because listen, if you hold out, you'll never know this love and you'll always live in regret. So, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. What is love? Greater love is none other than laying down your life, than Jesus choosing us and appointing us and setting us aside. That's what it's like to be loved by Jesus. That you're worth this much to him even when you were unlovely. That he sees you as lovely even when you were unlovely. He proves it. He feels this way about you. But now we need to transition to the next point, which is after receiving the love of Jesus, knowing the love of Jesus, being transformed by the love of Jesus, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus lays down his life for his friends. He's revealed the mystery of the cross to his friends. He's chosen and set aside his friends. Now those same friends do what he commands. They do what he did for them. We love like Jesus. I want to draw your attention to verses 12 and 17. Try to, try to like read both if you can in your Bible. This is a really important point. It says in verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17 says, These things I command you so you will love one another. Now you'll notice that between those two verses, they're, they're almost exactly the same. They're nearly identical, and that's purposeful. Every time you come to a passage and you see like it begins one way and ends nearly the same way with the same select group of words, that's, that lets you know that that paragraph or that unit is all about what those two sentences are saying. So here's what, here's what I'm saying here. The whole point of Jesus' teaching here, even though it's incredible and lavish and scandalous, is not that we're loved by Jesus. That's incredible, don't miss it, but that's not the point. Because these two verses are making the point telling us what this whole entire teaching is about, which is to live a life of love. To live a life of love for others. To be so affected by the love of Jesus that we spill over that love into other relationships. The aim of this passage, in other words, is to get us so unbelievably filled by the love of Jesus that we pour it out in our relationships with one another. You know, psychologists say that the greatest influence in your life and, who, and what dictates who you become is your friends. It's true sociologically, and it's absolutely true spiritually. If, you are now, if you're now friends with Jesus because he died for you and because he has selected you, then you become a lover of others. You become like him. That's just the way it goes. It's just the natural way of things. So you can agree with me. Listen, all you want, that it's incredible to be loved by Jesus but if that never turns you into a lover of other people, something is very wrong. Either you're not his friend at all, or you've not tended to that friendship in a very long time, or you're just missing the point. The intended end of our spiritual formation, who we're becoming, the image of Christ being formed in us, the whole entire point of our spiritual formation is to Make us a lover of other people, to live a life of love. 
And so when our inner life is filled with the love of Jesus, it brims over through our being and our doing, and something is wrong if that's not the case. So let me go ahead and remind you of this. Now that we know the standard to, you know, Jesus commands us to love, what's his love like again? Like, what's the nature of his love? I'm just going to remind you, it loves unto death. And now most of us won't actually have to give up our life, undergo martyrdom for the sake of loving other people. But what this does mean is we have to die to ourselves. That every excuse that we'd have, every limit we put on ourselves now is illegitimate because of Jesus' love for us. That sets the standard. So this kind of love he's expecting and articulating here It doesn't give what's left over. It doesn't consider what's in my best interest. It puts all self-interest aside. It's selfless. It's self-emptying, self-denying, self-forgetting, self-sacrificial, death to self. It leaves nothing on the table. It loves without beginning and without end, right? Just like Jesus' love. It initiates and it perseveres and it's stubborn and it transforms us. That's what our love is supposed to do for other people. It's stubborn, it's persistent, it believes against all odds because I'm going to love that person, that unlovely person, till they become lovely, just like Jesus has done for me. So now, if we have been friends of Jesus, loved like this, we turn around and love others like it. You know, in pastoral ministry, you know, uh, my, you know when I get together with my pastor buddies, we talk about calling, right? When did God call you to ministry? When did you experience the call to ministry? Each and every single one of us here have a calling. Have a divine calling on our life to live a life of love. To be so overwhelmed by the radical love of Jesus for you that you naturally spill over with that love into other people's hearts. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you must answer the call to live a life of love. One author says this, Mature discipleship begins, whether we are explicitly conscious of it or not, when we begin to live more for others than for ourselves. The anthropological and spiritual task is clear. How do I give my life away more purely and more generously? Living out that struggle is what constitutes mature discipleship. Meaning, if you want to be a mature Christian... If that's your goal, to have the image of Christ formed in you, right? To walk around and be like Him, knowledge is good. Truth is good. But it should catalyze you to living a life of love, dying to self constantly, more generously, more quickly, more wholeheartedly, without complaint and reservation. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If you lack love, you gain nothing and are nothing, which means you can say all the right things, and, ha- and be well-versed, and have tons of experience in the church, for example. But if you do not love, it invalidates the whole thing. It, it, just, it weakens the whole structure of your, Christian, of your Christian life. And so, here's what this looks like here, okay? Like, if we get this vision and believe this, if we're loved by Jesus and love others, here's what happens. This community, it's filled with givers, not takers, not consumers. I don't show up to, to, uh, thinking, how, what am I going to get today? How am I benefited? I show up thinking, how can I bless and how can I give? A community that is loved 
by Jesus and loves others like Jesus is humble, not arrogant. It's committed to community, not isolation. This kind of life, it lives by the mantra, my life is not about me. The world does not revolve around me. My life is not my own. Others are entitled to my time, gifts, and resources. Living a life of love. But I'll remind you, this is only possible when you are swimming in the love of God. When you're drinking deeply of the well, that is the love of Jesus for you. Otherwise, if you go out just trying to live and expend yourself, what's going to happen is either you're going to burn out and just shipwreck, or what could happen is you might think you're loving people, but if your heart is not filled abundantly with the love of Jesus and you're operating out of deficiency, trying to love other people, what's automatically and probably unconsciously going to happen is you're going to love people instrumentally, meaning you're going to love people to try to get out of them, to try to benefit from them instead of just loving for the sake of themselves, for their sake, not your own sake. So think about it. We usually make friends with people who are useful to us, who are beneficial to us. But when they cease to be, the friendship usually grows apart. Love in our community, this kind of love that's empowered by the love of Jesus, it reverses that trend. We make friends with people to be useful to them, to benefit them. It's all about others, not about me. Let me also highlight one phrase here in verses 12 and 17. Love one another. Underline that one, one another. Two small words, crucial words. Because we're to love others like Jesus, but also you are to receive the love of Jesus through people, through others. You know, we casually say, like, people are the worst, all right? People are so exhausting. Oh, like, people, ah. Uh. We say that like tongue-in-cheek, laughing it off. But a church community that's motivated by the love of Jesus thinks people are a blessing, that relationships are a blessing, that others are a gift and not a nuisance. <laughs> and some of you need to hear this more than anything today. Some of you are brought here today to hear this, one another, and this is what you need to focus on. Do not remove yourself from the outpouring of Jesus' love through other people. We need it. This is one of, of Jesus' premier means to fill you up and give you vitality, other believers, a community of love surrounding you. The danger is it's possible to isolate yourself, become skeptical of others, to the point where you calcify your heart and become impenetrable to love. Now, there's a few reasons why that might be happening, why that might be the case for you. First, it might be because you think Christians are judgmental and the church is a relic and it has no place in your life today. You might think that. But I'll tell you this, you might be surprised if you give it a shot. We're not so bad. <laughs> you might be surprised, but also here's what I'd say to you. Be careful you're not placing your wisdom above God's. Because this is God's idea. And we're not perfect, but this is his design, and this is his chosen method to bless you. So if you're humble to him, you'll be open to his people. In other words, you can't hold in contempt those who Jesus, Jesus loves. If these are Jesus' friends, then they should be your friends. 
Second reason why you might not accept the love of others is because we accept the love we think we deserve. And so some of you think nobody could love me if they knew me. If I really opened myself up and was vulnerable to somebody, then they would, they would turn and run. <laughs> Maybe you think you've messed up too much, crossed too many lines, not worth anyone's time. But Jesus loves you. He's died for you. He has chosen you. And therefore, we love you. He thinks you're worthwhile. We think you're worthwhile. And so look, like I said before, welcome to the club. If you're here and you think that you're too far gone, church is a place for people who are broken and who are in need. And God has given us one another to help us, to help each other. Third, you may think, what's the point? If I give it a try, if I try to receive love for other, from other people, it's not going to do me any good. It's not going to help me. But you need to trust in the Lord in all your ways. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. People, His friends, are one of His premier means of loving you and showing you how much He loves you. So, we got to be loved by Jesus and then love like Jesus. But if you've been reading, look at verse 16, and you'll notice that there's a part in here that seems really random, that seems like it might not fit. I want to show you that it absolutely does. Verse 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the na- in the fa- ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now you may think, why does Jesus slip in this part about praying? getting uh, answers to prayer and bearing fruit? Like, what does this have to do with him loving us and us loving one another? And here's, here's the answer. When a group of people are loved by Jesus and love one another, another likeness, you can't contain that. From that place of abundance, love just spills out everywhere into the surrounding community, into the surrounding area. And so what Jesus is envisioning here is a church that's committed to loving another, one another this radically. Others take notice. Others are, are magnetized to this community. They come to faith. They know the love of Jesus themselves. And it just exponentially multiplies. And Jesus says, when you see that happening, when that fruit is, is, is bearing, pray in my name and ask that it keeps going that it abides, that it sustains. And so what's our main idea? Be loved by Jesus, love like Jesus for the mission of Jesus. The telos of our community, what's supposed to happen is whatever's happening here just is supposed to bleed out beyond these walls and change our surrounding area. You know, we've been talking about love, and love is a really nice word. It's tender, we tend to romanticize it and sentimentalize it. But biblically, biblically love is a powerful word. <laughs> when you look at the early church, you know, why did the church outlast Rome? Rome died, but the church kept going. Eventually, Christianity overtook the Roman Empire until Constantine had to make it the national religion. That's how he had to control it and manage it. What does that show us? <laughs> Christianity beat Rome not with weapons, not with boots on the ground, but with love. The love of Christians for one another was like an epidemic that could not be controlled. Love is a powerful word. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that if we commit to this vision for life, while Jesus is absent, his his mission for us, his stipulation for us is 
love one another as I have loved you. Do you believe that that can actually change Annapolis, the academy, change Anne Arundel County, the world? Do you believe that that could actually happen? He's promised. If you ask in my name, I will give it. This is God's will, that we be a part of a movement of love for his glory in the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? Leslie Newbigin, a a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, he was a missionary in India. He came back and realized that the future of America is going to be Christians as missionaries because of the way it was going back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And he said this, We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which God is the answer. Isn't that true? That the way we live with one another our commitment to one another, our sacrificing for one another, our linking arms together in love, our stubborn love for one another, shouldn't that cause the world to ask questions that only the gospel could answer? That's Jesus' vision for us, loved by him, love like him for his mission. So let me challenge you to join this mission. By what? By radically giving yourself to love of Jesus and then radically giving yourself to one another and then watch and pray and wait and see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we trust you and we know that you don't play with words. So we ask that by your spirit and through your grace, which is the only way this could happen, that you would ignite a passion within us to know you, Jesus, to know your love for us, How great is your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In love, you predestined us and chose us for adoption. God, let us be overwhelmed by the radical nature of your love. It's totally out of this world. And God, by your spirit now, I pray that you would cause us to love others this way. To not grow weary. Have a love that bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. To love other people into a place of loveliness. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus for your glory that our love for one another might be a signpost to the kingdom of heaven. That our love for one another would only make sense because you're risen. Because you've died for us. And that's so true that we've been overwhelmed by it and changed by it. God, we pray that we would see a great harvest before our eyes. Lord, this is your mission. This is your reputation. This is your namesake. And so we're calling you, God, to be true to your word, to do a great thing in our time before our eyes. And so, Lord, touch our hearts with your love so we might love one another and watch and wait and pray and see what happens. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.